Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Kids are smart. They know that they can go on many of these vape retail sites, which are not well age gated. They've been able to buy these things on eBay. You can go into any high school bathroom in America pretty much now and find a kid who will sell you a hit off his jewel for a dollar. So it's caught on like wildfire. Vaping is snuffing out cigarette smoking, but only at the great expense of more and more teens jeweling wholesale amounts of nicotine. The new, often fruit-flavored crisis facing the FDA and every high school in the country. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is made possible by Health Warrior. They make the chia bar that I adore. The Health Warrior chia bar comes in all sorts of flavors. My favorite being apple cinnamon chia bars. You can get the dragon fruit chia bar, acai berry chia bar, banana nut chia bar. And what's nice about them is there's only 100 calories and 3 grams of sugar. They're the perfect fit for your healthy lifestyle made with real plant-based ingredients that will fill you up without weighing you down. Dairy-free, gluten-free, soy-free, and non-GMO. Check them out at healthwarrior.com for all sorts of promotions and discounts. And by Elwood Thompson's, my favorite market in Virginia, at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets. You will see me there on Indian Wednesdays. You will see me there for breakfast with a delicious variety of Blanchard coffees. I love the patio, which is really gorgeous in the autumn. I love management, Rick and Molly Hood. Check them out at elwoodthompsons.com and at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name. Joining me from NPR in Washington, D.C. is Robin Koval, CEO of Truth Initiative, the nonprofit tobacco control organization famous for its truth campaign. In a past life, Robin headed publicist Kaplan Thaler when it was Manhattan's fifth largest ad agency. She joined Truth, which is previously, what was it, the Legacy Foundation? Yes. In 2013. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. So what's amazing is out of this administration is we keep getting bombshells out of the Food and Drug Administration, out of an administration whose cabinet is decidedly um, laissez-faire. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb chimes in and he singles out Juul, among other vaping giants, for what he called an epidemic of high schoolers using e-cigarettes. So he was on CNBC and he said... I think we need to acknowledge that much of the teenage use of vapes or e-cigs is being driven by Juul, which, which, you know, in my discussion with you over the years, just came out of nowhere. It's like this USB device that suddenly all these parents in high school, all these PTA organizations are sending out letters that we are going to crack down on Juul. When did you first notice this thing? Well, you know, the product was launched in 2015, and it kind of got on our radar screen, but it was small. And, you know, a lot of these new e-cigarette products were coming out every single day of the week. But very quickly, Juul was quite clever, and they launched a social media campaign and started having launch parties for their product and doing what, you know, a smart brand would do these days in terms of how do you launch a product, especially one that is going to have a big base among young people, is you do it in the social space. And so it started just out of nowhere, really, I mean, getting this head of steam and through, you know, um, what happens on social where things just start to go viral, instigated by them, but then picked up by young people themselves who, you know, what's better than doing your own marketing is having other people do it for you, just caught steam and, frankly, um, came uh, surprised a lot of people in terms of how fast they've grown. They went from nothing in 2015 when they first launched to now having 72%, that's the latest number I've seen in terms of market share of the e-cigarette market, which... I mean, in my whole life in marketing, I have never seen a product grow that quickly. Yeah, and this is what's mind-boggling. Sales have skyrocketed nearly 800% to help them kind of lord over that almost three-quarter share of the very dispersed um, um, vaping market. Um, and so that company sold – I mean, Juul, just which, which was – you know, it's looked at as kind of like a Silicon Valley type startup. It's it's San Francisco-based. It sold $1.3 billion in vape kits and nicotine pods during the 12 months that ended August 2011, and more than half of the $2.3 billion for the entire category. And 
The upshot of this is Juul is now valued in the private markets at north of $15 billion. That must make it the envy of all the legacy tobacco giants like Altria, Philip Morris International, British American Tobacco. I mean, this could potentially really disrupt what they have left. It's very disruptive. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is a company that is behaving more like, as you say, a tech company than a tobacco company. But the other thing that's happening and is always going to happen when you have, you know, a product that just catches on like that is so we've got Juul, yes, valued at 16 billion dollars, raising money like crazy. And now you have a whole slew of copycats that are also out there. So products like Candy Pen, um, there's a product called Sorin, there's, there are products also that are being made to uh, uh, interchangeable, the pods themselves that you slip into the Juul device. So this is a very disruptive technology that, you know, e-cigarettes have gone from, you know, those original sort of, we call them cigar-like devices. They literally look like plastic cigarettes. Yeah, you just don't, you don't see those anymore, Robin. You see either, you know, you see a handful of people still smoking traditional cigarettes, and then you see these things that are like lungs, these massive sacks that people use ostensibly to freebase vaping nicotine liquid, and then suddenly jewels. Right, and, you know, it is a product design uh, advance. Um, I have to give them credit for that. You had these, you know, first these Sigalikes, which were just kind of stupid looking. Now, then you went to those sort of big tanks and mods. That's what you're talking about that were just dorky um, and really only appealed to, you know, kind of that small vaping community that liked to make big smoke clouds and stuff like that. This is a product that fits in your hand. It's easy to carry. It's very techy looking. Um, and so as a product design, it really is superior. But what's so dangerous about that is that's what makes kids love it because it's really small. It's really cool. Um, it looks like a USB device. So your parents, your teachers don't know what the heck it is. You can hide it in your hand. You can sit in class and use it, um, you know, and blow the vapor up your sleeve. And um, that's what just made it catch on like crazy. And, and this is also a big difference, the level of nicotine. So these early e-cigarette devices weren't really that good at delivering nicotine, and they didn't have as much of it. Juul is 5% nicotine. It uses this nicotine salt uh, format, which is a little different than other e-juice kind of products, and it gives a very powerful punch of nicotine. Juul themselves says that one pod, one of those little pods you pop into it, is equal to an, an entire pack of cigarettes in terms of the nicotine delivery. So this is where we start to get into nuance because that could be enormously helpful to, you know, a three-pack-a-day smoker for 20 or 30 years. We know about the hazards of of traditional cigarettes. I mean, the industry no longer kind of denies that. They don't try to really tell the world that they sell <laughs> cigarettes. They like to be known as, as innovators right now. But there's benzene in cigarettes, obviously the tar. Um, it was traditionally not the nicotine that hurt you, but everything added to it to make it as addictive and as sticky and um, delivering it in a way that would pack a punch. So you must get accosted with this all the time. Like, why are you suddenly up against innovation that is helping people avoid the worst of kind of heart disease, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, all of these things that we know are demonstrably very much linked to traditional cigarette sales? Well, I wish it were true what you're saying, that uh, that smokers who, you know, were unable to quit or won't quit cigarettes any other way were, you know, going in droves to e-cigarettes and using them to 100% switch or to, better even than that, to quit using anything because that would reduce their risk. E-cigarettes are not harmless, but they're certainly um, dramatically less harmful than a combustible regular cigarette. But that's not what hap- what's happening in the real world. What's happening in the real world is you do have individual cases of people using e-cigarettes to get transitioned off of regular cigarettes, which is great. 
But most of the usage, most of the adult usage is dual usage, which does not reduce your risk, right? So if you went from smoking a pack of cigarettes to half a pack of cigarettes and using an e-cigarette as well, you're not helping yourself. Uh, So we see a lot of that. We don't see a lot of evidence that these are really effective cessation tools yet. Um, Maybe that will happen. That would be good. And what's happening instead is the very people who shouldn't be using these products, who shouldn't be using nicotine because it does have effects, even if it's not, you know, all the lung cancer and all that bad stuff, are young people, people who have never smoked or people who are being introduced to nicotine and then using other combustible products. So we know that, um, and this comes from the National Academies of Science report, that young people who start using e-cigarettes are four times as likely to go on and use combustible tobacco. That's really bad. We know that nicotine has effects on the developing brain. That's really bad. We know the earlier you are, the younger you are, when you get addicted to nicotine, the harder it is for you to quit later on. So um, while there's promise in terms of, you know, the harm reduction benefit of e-cigarettes, they're not the silver bullet, but they could help. It's not, it's not what's happening in the real world. You know, Robin, when I was a bucking bronco in high school, I say when I turned 16 or 17, I thought my cranium was fully developed, my brain. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that, that that you were indefatigable. You were immortal as a young person, even though we hear that you only get full calcification and brain development in your 20s. Uh, but I think, you know, looking back, there was Smoker's Alley where, where uh, you know, a lot of the latchkey kids and, and kids who were skipping class would smoke cigarettes and a lot of the stoners would gather under the bleachers and whatnot. But the the ones who would kind of pay attention in class and stay in class and stay on the straight and narrow, I remember the only thing we would even borderline abuse was Viverin, you know, caffeine <laughs> tablets. And if you were really, really, really badass, you would chase it down with Mountain Dew ahead of an AP test or something like that. Oh, what a bad boy you were. <laughs> I was off. I mean, I was unbelievable. I should have gotten a Harley and I many, many, many more women should have dated me. But I digress as, as usual. Um Now we see stats. I mean, it's pretty stunning. If you take traditional cigarettes, I'm quoting the Centers for Disease Control, nearly eight of every hundred high school students reported in 2017 that they smoked cigarettes in the past 30 days. That's 7.6%. That decreased from 15.8% in 2011. Now you look at the flip side of that ledger in electronic cigarettes, which is a big kind of catch basin. Nearly 12 of every hundred high school students 11.7% reported in 2016 that they used electronic cigarettes in the past 30 days, an increase from 1.5% in 2011. So this has taken on like crazy. We hear all these things anecdotally. My children are not in middle school or high school yet, but um, we do have friends, fellow parents who talk about the PTA sending letters about new smoke detection devices in bathrooms specifically to go after Juul, how easy it is to conceal these things, how kids... um, know the person who's going to hook them up with a secondhand jewel. Sometimes they buy these on the aftermarket for 50 bucks. What are you seeing? All of that. All of that. I mean, we hear story after story, and at some point, you know, the anecdotes become data. Um, And, uh, you know, these products, let's remember, they are illegal for sale to young people. Uh, You know, you have to be 18, and in some states, 21 to buy these products. In our own experience, um, we've uh, had young people attempt to buy uh, products online. They have been successful. Uh, In some of our research, we actually asked young people, uh, this was in a study of 15 to 21-year-olds, were you you able to purchase uh, Juul online? And 80 2% were successful in making a purchase, even if they were underage. So you're right. It's not hard to get your hands on these products. Kids are very, very clever about how to do it. Um, 
Jules' site, um, which is, you know, they have done a lot to try to age gate it and protect it as much as possible. But kids are smart. They know that they can go on many of these vape retail sites, which are not well age gated. Um, they've been able to buy these things on eBay. You're right. You can go into any high school bathroom in America pretty much now and find a kid who will sell you a hit off his jewel for a dollar. So it's caught on like wildfire. Um, and what we also know, and this this is kind of scary, is that while they all know about jewel, only two-thirds of the young people we surveyed, now this was back in November, and the numbers could have changed, but at that time, only two, two-thirds of the young people we surveyed did not know that Juul always contains nicotine. So there's a lot of misperception. They think, you know, oh, it's just cool flavors, it's mango, it's fruit medley. They get a head rush, but they don't really know what it's from. So, you know, there's a lot of lack of information out there, too. Full disclosure, we're talking to Robin Koval. She's CEO of Truth Initiative, the nonprofit tobacco control organization famous for its truth campaign. Now firmly in the crosshairs is is Juul and vaping, which this this vaping technology has taken over the country over three or four years. The company is worth $15 billion, but squarely in the crosshairs of the Food and Drug Administration, which is giving Juul, what, 60 days to come up with a strategy to combat teen vaping. On the flip side of this, I think about the legacy industry. And they don't get talked about as much anymore, but you look at Altria, the parent of Philip Morris USA, you know, and the Marlboro Man. And there's Philip Morris International, which broke up with Altria almost a decade ago, and they might well get back together. There's British American Tobacco. There are a handful of other players. It's a significantly consolidated field. And I cannot get this one stat out of my head. Credit Suisse publishes a report every year on the performance of every major industry um, over the 20th century into the present. And I saw this stat that just blew my mind. It said between 1900 and 2010, a dollar in the average American industry was worth thirty-eight thousand dollars by twenty ten. That's an annual return of about ten percent per year. A dollar invested in food companies was worth about seven hundred thousand by twenty ten. Then there's tobacco, which was in a league of its own. A dollar invested in tobacco stocks in nineteen hundred was worth six point three million dollars by twenty ten. That's a hundred and sixty-five times greater than the average industry. And I bring it to the here and now. And even though you see adult and teen smoking rates in the United States collapse, these companies have still held their own. And in fact, on the heels of the FDA announcement, their stocks had an enormous run-up, as if like this relief rally that if the FDA is taken on vaping, then they're going to be distracted and they're not going to take on our traditional cigarettes anymore. What are you hearing? Well, um, you're, first of all, I mean, why, why are these companies always so successful? Because um, they have, you know, probably the most powerful business model in the world. It's called addiction. Uh, which, you know, uh, protects their business, good times or bad. Um, I think you're right. One of the things that, you know, the big multinational tobacco companies have done is even as smoking rates have declined in the United States and other places, they have been aggressively building business in uh, Africa and other parts of the developing world um, and although they make lots of noise about, you know, wanting to be part of the solution, Philip Morris talks a lot about, you know, uh, their vision for a smoke-free world. They have not in any way stepped back from being as aggressive as they ever have been in growing their uh, combustible business and, by the way, thwarting every attempt that's made uh, by governments and uh, nonprofit groups to reduce smoking. So every tax increase that gets proposed uh, in the United States and elsewhere gets, uh, uh, you know, uh, tons of money thrown against it by the tobacco industry to stop it. There's an effort going on right now. Montana wants to raise the tobacco tax. Uh, R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris, or Altria in the United States, are funding the backlash against it. So, you know, we have a very, very powerful industry that despite any, um, you know, fancy PR schemes about wanting to be part of the solution and creating a smoke-free world, 
uh, we should not be fooled is has one motive, um, which is to grow their business uh, in any way they can. But take Altria, for example. Altria itself has harm reduction products. I mean, whether is 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 vaping? I think is, I don't know if Newmark is theirs. Um, one one of theirs. It's a it's a small sliver of their entire cash flow statement and income statement. But they are investing in technologies. You did show me something that, for example, Philip Morris International is trying to promote, which is heat not burn, which this mm-hmm. this device almost looks like an iPod or an iPhone that had little mini type cigarettes that get toasted, if you will. Um, very fashionable. It's uh, it's not as smelly as smoking and maybe gets you the nicotine hit. That almost looks antiquated and threatened now, you know, compared to Juul. You're absolutely right. So ICOS, you know, is something that Philip Morris has spent billions developing. Uh, they launched it in Japan and a number of other countries. Uh, and at first, uh, the Jap- the Japanese uh, business in particular looked like it was doing okay. Um, more recently, that business has slowed. Uh, our own research says that the product, you know, especially um, in European countries, not that appealing. It's a little, it looks kind of cool, but it's a little clunky to use. Uh, they have tried to get it approved in the United States. The FDA has told them no so far. Uh, but compared to uh, a jewel, uh, the ICOS is way more expensive, definitely harder to use. Now, maybe it'll appeal to smokers because it's more like a cigarette smoking experience. Uh, but I think they got caught looking, too, with the Jewel launch. I don't think anybody was prepared for how popular this product would be. But let me go back to what I said before. Um, you know, all these companies are saying that these products, Icos, uh, Juul, various other e-cigarette products, are, you know, all about we're creating these products because we want to help smokers, uh, you know, get nicotine but in a less harmful way. But that's not actually what's happening in the real world. That's, number one, not who they're positioning these products to. They're not being, you know, advertised and position to appeal to, you know, 40-year-old smokers who have been smoking for 20 years. They're being made to look very cool, very high-tech, with, you know, ads that show young, beautiful, lifestyle-y type situations. And, you know, call me crazy, but I've been in marketing a long time, and you see that sort of uh, advertising and promotion out there. It sure looks like you're trying to create a market for new, young users. Well, what of these legacy companies, though? I'm still, I, you know, they, they hold an enormous amount of sway in terms of lobbying, in terms of the money they give to certain candidates. Um, Altria itself, the parent of Philip Morris USA, in the second quarter of 2018, its domestic cigarette shipment volumes fell 11% year over year. I think if you take any other category, you look at magazine publishing or TV that's being disrupted by digital, if you will, there'd be a lot more panic about that old analog product, about cigarettes. But these guys have actually done a good job in increasing prices and maybe slowing the shift to an alternative product. I wonder that if they had their druthers, they would own a product like Juul. Uh, well, I imagine they're trying very hard to do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what uh, Juul's ultimate end game is. I mean, this is, a, you know, an entrepreneurial business, Um, The typical Silicon Valley model will be that, you know, there will be um, some sort of endgame that's being developed in terms of, you know, either they go public or they or they sell. Um, So uh, we'll have to wait and to to see what happens there. I would hate to see another public uh, tobacco company out there raising money from uh, investors. In fact, you know, one of the things that I'm really curious about is, uh, especially with younger uh, investors, uh, younger people in the financial markets, is really people should be divesting from tobacco. How do you do that, though, in the era of indexing where people have just moved to passive management? And, And it's also shown demonstrably time and time again that because of people divesting, because of people like CalPERS, you actually 
don't get to partake in enormous upside from these companies. Altria, for example, has done enormously well, has trounced the market. Well, you know, that's actually not as true as it used to be. So, for instance, you mentioned CalPERS, which is the uh, California pension group. Um, They actually um, had been divested, and then there was a move from within their their, uh, board to consider reinvesting in tobacco for that very reason. There was a question of whether they were leaving money on the table. And, of course, they have a fiduciary responsibility to grow the fund as much as they possibly can. And in their research, they found that they actually had not uh, left money on the table, so to speak. Uh, And what's also interesting is despite the little run-up in tobacco industry stock yesterday, which I think is momentary, and that's just the gambling instinct of Wall Street, tobacco stocks have been depressed over the last year and are actually at some of the lowest points they've ever been. Hmm. Uh, I would like to get you to talk about the FDA and unintended consequences. Um, Scott Gottlieb comes in and and there was a Black Friday moment for tobacco stocks where he more than intimated that FDA is finally going to flex its muscles and taper down the amount of nicotine that you can have in cigarettes. If you could kind of unpack that for me and talk about how you looked at that, could that potentially force people into vaping or freebasing nicotine or hoarding nicotine if you finally get the Fed coming in and and saying that we're going to control this product in a more robust way than we did in the past? Well, the the idea of a nicotine standard, which is what you're talking about, is a very exciting idea. It's something that has been talked about uh, for quite a while, actually, you know, for those of us who are in the tobacco control space. But Scott Gottlieb um, and uh, Director Zeller, who's the head of the tobacco, the Center for Tobacco Products at FDA, I mean, finally um, created some excitement around this. Scott Gottlieb loved the idea. And what it's about is, remember, people smoke cigarettes for the nicotine, right, the addictive stuff, but what they die of is all the tars and chemicals and you know, all those horrible um, products of combustion. So what if you could take cigarettes and make them minimally or um, unable to sustain addiction, right? The FDA can't take the nicotine level down to zero. Congress didn't give them that authority, but they can get it very, very, very low. If you did that, um, the theory goes is that, number one, young people wouldn't get addicted. Even if they experimented with smoking, they would never get addictive and they would basically not like it and not not continue. And you'd also make it easier for people who are current smokers to, if they weren't getting their nicotine satisfaction from cigarettes, then maybe they'd move to the harm-reduced products like an e-cigarette, which would be much less risky for their health. And so that's the idea behind it. The research that's been done has actually shown, number one, that um, you don't get a lot of people compensating, right, smoking more cigarettes than they were before because they're desperately trying to get their nicotine. You do get a considerable number of people who uh, who quit, sometimes with the help of things like NRT, et cetera. And I would say, you know, the whole issue of counterfeiting and black market is that's an old, old story that the tobacco industry always drags out whenever anybody, you know, introduces any any suggestion that might limit their business. There's really very little evidence to suggest that there would be a major black market if something like that happened. Right. But the part that I struggle with, and I remember I was having a conversation with a pizza shop owner uh, who said he he told me he was a three-pack-a-day smoker of Winston's for the longest mm. time in his life. He developed awful anxiety and coughing every time he had to quit and that vaping changed his life. And as he was talking to me, it was that enormous lung uh, that you see, this sack. It's almost like a mini bagpipe. You know what I'm talking about, the people that vape out there. They mean business. It's like an Aqualung thing. <laughs> it's not that little kind of Newmark cigarette that you would see vintage 2010, 2011. And he admitted that the only way to kind of supplant the whole three-pack-a-day habit was through this freebasing of wholesale amounts of nicotine. So if the FDA does clamp down on both, let's say, you know, the, the e-cigarette of choice, Juul, and traditional cigarettes and tapers down the nicotine content, 
My problem is, is that nicotine is so hugely available right now in any corner bodega, in any little pod, in, um, you know, it, it's, not the, it's not a Fortune 500 company that's selling you the vials of stuff. It's just everywhere. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, this is part of the, you know, concern we've had with, um, you know, needing FDA to move uh, faster than they have been moving. So this person that you're talking about, if if he's been able to get rid of his three packs of Winstons a day and use a vape device to do that, he has made a tremendous um, step in terms of protecting his health. Is it harmless what he's doing? No, but in terms of, you know, uh, getting rid of those three-pack-a-day, that Winston habit that was, you know, 50% chance that that was going to kill him, um, he's made a great step. Uh, But what I would say is, is, is this guy really getting protected as much as he should be? We don't know right now. So whatever he's filling, you know, whatever juice, e-juice he's using to fill up that big tank system that he has. Um, right now, we don't know what's in it. We don't know if what you buy today is the same as what you buy tomorrow. Um, where does it come from? What sort of quality uh, manufacturing standards were used. I mean, none of that has actually been put in place yet. And so, you know, we're worried for a few reasons. We're obviously worried about protecting kids. We don't want them using any of this. But we also want smokers who are trying desperately to quit combustible regular cigarettes to have products that we know actually work. And right now, we don't really know that. There was this uh, piece in The New Yorker, a big feature about um, the blessing and the curse that is Juul. It says, the promise of vaping and the rise of Juul, the author Gia Tolentino, if I could just read the first paragraph, because this is when I realized it was really a big deal. She writes, if I get addicted to vaping, I thought, I will always remember this Texas strip mall. I was walking out of a store called Smoke and Chill Novelties in Southwest Austin, holding a receipt for $63 and two crisp white shrink wrap boxes. I got into the driver's seat of a rental car and began to open them. From one, I extracted a jewel, a slim black vaporizer about half the width and weight of a Bic lighter with rounded edges and gently burnished finish. It looks like a flash drive, everyone always points out. You can recharge it by plugging it into your computer. From the other, I extracted a thumbnail-sized cartridge called a pod, filled with juice containing a cigarette pack's worth of nicotine. The juice in my pod was cucumber-flavored. This was an odd choice, I was later told. Of Juul's eight flavors, people tend to prefer mango or mint. I inserted the pod into the Juul, and a little light on the device glowed green. I took a sharp, experimental inhalation and nearly jumped. It felt as if a tiny ghost had rushed out of the vaporizer and slapped me on the back of my throat. I took another hit and another. Each one was a white spike of nothing, a pop, a flavored coolness of the idea of cucumber just vanished inside my mouth. As I pulled out of the parking lot, my scalp tingled. I mean, wow, it kind of makes me want to go out and try one. Well, yeah, I mean, and this is the problem with young people. So you can go on YouTube and see video after video of... Pretty young-looking people, you know, some of them I imagine are under 18, maybe some of them are a little bit older, but extolling the virtues of Juul with just those kinds of descriptions. They talk about getting head rushes. They talk about doing the Juul challenge to see, you know, how many uh, hits on the Juul you can take in a minute. Uh, I saw one about, you know, the Juul hotbox challenge, which is, you know, getting all your friends, sitting in a car, closing up the windows, and, you know, jeweling and filling the car with the, uh, the, the uh, aerosol from the jewel when you, you exhale to intensify the nicotine effect. So, I have heard also about college kids who were, up, up until two, three years ago, using Adderall to get through exams, now getting together for jewel study breaks. Yeah. So, you know, kids are, are, are you know, finding um, what, a utility for this product, which um, you know is kind of is kind of scary, but what's really scary is you know a cigarette is a portion, right? So if you're a young person and you're kind of experimenting with cigarettes, maybe you go outside because you can't smoke in your classroom, or you certainly can't probably can't smoke in your house, um, and you smoke one cigarette, which is bad. 
Um, and then it's going to be a while, right, before you smoke another cigarette. But with Juul, because it's so discreet um, and, no, uh, you know, a lot of people, parents and, and teachers don't know what it is, you can pretty much uh, hit that Juul, as, 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 as it's called, uh, all day, as much as you want, as long as you want, and you could actually consume a lot more nicotine than you might think you're consuming. And so that trajectory, that progression to um, addiction can happen a lot faster. Now, what does cost play a role in terms of keeping teens out of this? I mean, there's an, an element of excitement and it's it's you know, contraband and getting it is exciting and the people who have it are, are known kind of influencers. Right. But what do you know about the cost and procurement in terms of your research in, in high school and middle school? Well, um, it is a pretty expensive product in, in terms of the device itself is about $49. And then depending on, you know, where you buy it and you get it over the internet or you get it at a retail store, the pods can go I think anywhere from like about $7 to $10 a piece. I think in some states they're a little more expensive. Um, so one of the things that we've seen, and this is is kind of disturbing too, is where do people still smoke regular cigarettes? Uh, it is unfortunately mostly in places with lower incomes, lower um, uh, education, um, uh, we, you know, kind of call it tobacco nation. A lot of it's in the mid and the set and the set Midwest and the South. Um, and that's a bad thing that we're leaving people behind. But we've made tremendous progress on kids smoking in areas of more affluence. So, you know, in California, in New York, um, in other places where the laws are stronger, people have better education, better access to health care. And frankly, the taxes are higher on a and, pack of cigarettes. You know the arbitrage between Central Virginia and New York. You could buy a pack for four bucks and sell it for three yep. times as much if you can smuggle it into midtown Manhattan. Yep. But here's what's happening with Juul. So the very populations who, you know, we kind of thought we'd check the box and said, yep, these kids are protected. Nobody's interested in smoking. Smoking rates are really, really low. Those are the populations that are um, becoming most interested, vulnerable, using Juul because they have money and they have access. Uh, but like I said, even in lower income areas, you can go into Juul, into a high school bathroom and buy a hit off a Juul for a dollar. And that what's also popping up now, and you see this all over uh, the internet, are Juul knockoff products that are half the price. Do you think these tobacco giants, the last few that remain, I mean, the, the hugely consolidated one, Altria and British American Tobacco, I mean, Altria owns the Mark 10 brand. Uh, British American Tobacco owns Views and Logic. Do you think they really want people to go into vaping? Or are they just trying to slow the demise, the atrophy of traditional cigarettes? Um, you know, I think they um, take a, a bit of a laissez-faire approach. Uh, you know, sort of like I would, you know, liken it maybe to uh, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola doesn't care if you drink uh, Coke, you know, Red Can, Coke Zero, Diet Coke, uh, Dasani water, any of those things, just they want you to buy something from them. Um, you're thirsty, you need to drink, buy a beverage from Coke. And I think the tobacco industry is sort of thinking about it that way too. They have said themselves, this is, you know, in documents that have been discovered from them, is that they realize they're in the nicotine business. And I think, you know, they're happy to sell you nicotine in any way, shape, or form you like it. Um, they, their most developed, most mature uh, business is in, you know, traditional combustible tobacco, and they have absolutely no intention of backing off that. But if there are also a group of people who want to use other nicotine products as well, they'll be happy to make that and sell it to you too. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Robin Koval. She's CEO of the Truth Initiative, the nonprofit tobacco control organization, famous for its truth campaign. And, and she's everybody's now been talking about the FDA and Juul and this um, very hip and, uh, you know, flavored 
USB type product that's been taking high schools and middle schools by storm and the FDA is finally putting in its crosshairs. I'd like to talk to you about some of the other efforts at Truth, namely in, in opioids, where we also see a, a you know, a, a, frankly, a massive crisis. And, and we do see abuse of people in college and high school with Oxy and these other things that could be looked at as gateway drugs to heroin when they're not available. But the country writ large is dealing with an enormous crisis right now. And I'd like to get in your head in terms of how you get in the head of a, a high schooler and middle schooler to have a frank conversation about this. Well, sure. So, you know, the Truth Campaign has, you know, traditionally been focused on tobacco. But when the Master Settlement Agreement was created back in the late 90s, uh, a lot of people don't know this, we were also given the permission uh, to address other issues of youth substance abuse. So in watching this horrible crisis that is going on in America that's affecting all kinds of people, young people, old people, and everybody in the middle, um, we really felt there was a role for us to play, uh, at least um, a small one, in helping uh, to educate and prevent young people from getting uh, caught up in what is a terrible, terrible crisis. And a lot of young people, you know, they get introduced um, uh, to opioids through, you know, they get their wisdom teeth removed. You get a sports industry. It's often common now uh, in in high schools, if somebody knows you're getting your wisdom teeth out, they know you're going to get an oxy prescription or Vicodin or Percodin or you know whatever it is. Is you're expected to share? That's just common uh, politeness to your friends. So it's a massive problem. Wait, you're really? Right. If if they know somebody's in for surgery or wisdom tooth removal, that you're going to get what ten tablets of something that you're going to share? Hey, buddy, you're going to share your pills? Um, I mean, we see that in social media all the time. Um, that's just kind of the etiquette of, uh, of drugs, I guess, in that, in that space. Uh, we also, there's a lot of lack of information. So if you talk to young people and, you know, you ask about the opioid crisis, you know, have you heard of that? And they say, yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. They know heroin's bad. They know fentanyl's really, really bad. Um, and then you say, well, like, but what about Vicodin? And they go like, well, yeah, that's not so bad. I mean, you know, that comes from the doctor and, hey, my grandma takes that. So, you know, it's pretty safe. So there's just a lot of confusion. Um, and what often happens with young people, unlike the way this um, crisis has unfolded with older people, if you're an older person and you have chronic pain and you've been prescribed opioids, um, you're you're pretty much going to keep getting that prescription. Now, that's going to addict you and subject you to lots of risks, but you're probably protected for a longer period of time to seeking drugs on the street, heroin, fentanyl, even worse. For young people, um, doctors don't like to prescribe opioids to young people. And so maybe you get an initial prescription, maybe you had a sports industry, but then you get cut off, in, uh, a sports injury, and then you get cut off. And what's the first thing that happens then? Then you know that, hey, heroin's pretty cheap. You can get it on the street. And so young people um, are frankly more at risk for that transition from addiction to prescription pills to really, really bad street drugs. What so, are you hearing in terms of the unintended consequences of the mental health epidemic and, and the overprescription of, of maybe benzos like clonopin? I also hear anecdotally that this is a problem in high school and it leads to other slippery slope issues and indeed, you know, crutching on vaping if you're trying to come out of withdrawal or, for example, you know, looking at Adderall or other opioids. It, it turns into a giant mess of codependency. Well, I mean, all of this is a problem. You're right. Um, you know, young people, and most people, but certainly it's probably young people are overprescribed. Um, and when you, you know, it's like we were talking about nicotine before, it's all very similar processes. You know, young brains that are still developing, when they start getting, you know, I'll use, use the phrase lit up in a way by these drugs that work in your brain, whether that's nicotine or opioids, or benzodiazepam drugs, um, any of those things, um, your brain starts to like them. 
and your brain, you know, then uh, actually gets changed. The wiring in your brain gets changed so that you need more and more of it. Um, and that's why we say that, you know, this opioid crisis is not a uh, a crisis of, you know, uh, it's a, it's a criminal issue, or it's you know people who get addicted to drugs have bad characters. This is a brain disease, right? And so for young people who are way more vulnerable, um, it's a big problem. So one of the things we're trying to do um, with the Truth Campaign is um, uh, take all the success we've had with uh, talking to young people about tobacco, doing it in a voice that feels authentic to them, and transfer that knowledge to having similar conversations with young people about the risks of opioids. You know, is it true that when the Truth Campaign was launched in 1998, the teen smoking rate was at 25%? We're now down to the mid-single digits, around 5%. Yeah, so when we started, it would, this is in 2000, 23% of young people smoke cigarettes, which I think, you know, just kind of blows my mind to think about it, that one quarter of all young people smoked a cigarette. Today, um, you know, there are different surveys out there. Um, There's one called Monitoring the Future that looks at 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. In that survey, it's 5.4% now. Uh, CDC has a survey called uh, NYTS, National Youth Tobacco Survey. In theirs, it's about 7.6%. Uh, So these numbers are getting really low. Uh, But, you know, getting back to our original topic on e-cigarettes, the e-cigarette number is uh, 11%. There was, um, uh, in part of Scott Gottlieb's comments yesterday, he uh, said that, you know, he has seen numbers, and I think I know what he's talking about, um, that suggest uh, dramatic increases from that. Um, one report said maybe as much as 75% in one year. So imagine if e-cigarette rates are now 18%, I mean, really heading up to a level that they were at uh, when we first started the truth campaign back in 2000, that would be a bad thing. And on the opioid side, um, we know that a very high percentage of young people Uh, get prescribed opioids every year. Um, They get introduced to these products, um, you know, for things like sports injuries, for things like wisdom teeth, when in fact, um, they don't even really need these these drugs um, to be adequately treated for pain. And it's just that, you know, they become too easy to prescribe and they're really risky. Robin, I remember, like, in, I think before you were a truth, they, um, the Legacy Foundation, the, the the former name, was infamous for its guerrilla on the street marketing, and and that one stunt with uh, body bags all across Forty Second Street, where Altria had its global headquarters before it moved to Central Virginia. What did you think of that when you saw it as an advertising person in Manhattan? And why haven't we seen more of that guerrilla type? hard-edged marketing, for example, talking about something like wet lung with vaping or opioid addiction and, and you know, young people in, in mortuaries? Well, I, I, I mean, it's one of the things that made me want to work at Truth to begin with. I have to say, when I saw that advertising back in 2000, I think is when it first ran, um, I, you know, I, it was, you know, one of those like, oh, my God. Um, if you could have broken the internet, then that would have broken the internet. Uh, amazing. Wonderful. I mean, there work. were these executives from Altria, the parent of, of Philip Morris, looking outside the window as a person on a bullhorn said, these are the number of people that are dying every hour, every day. And you had body bags strewn across 42nd Street. Am I remembering that correctly? I mean, it's back it, when people used to watch TV. Yes. Back, 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 when, back when people watched TV. Yeah. No, it was a great ad. Um, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, it was a guerrilla stunt. And, you know, look, we still do um, some pretty uh, edgy things today, uh, you know, for for truth. Uh, we've done, you know, things where we've uh, we had this statistic that, uh, you know, trying to talk about secondhand smoke. Uh, and, you know, young people don't want to hear about health effects. But we knew that dogs and cats were twice as likely 
to get cancer if their owners smoked. And so we started going, hmm, what would that mean? If all the cats got cancer, there would be no more cat videos. And we know, like, cats and porn, right? That's what drives the Internet. And so we created this very, very funny uh piece of content called Catmageddon that was all about using all like the viral um, video cat stars to show, uh, you know, what would happen if uh, all the cats died of, of cancer, uh, we'd have no more cat videos. So we did pretty crazy things. But you're talking very serious stuff right now. Nicotine freebasing through Juul and opioid addiction and the slippery slope to this. And can that only be fought with very gruesome, real... I talk about, you know, the, the, the health commissioner of New York City and those ads where the person would hold up a microphone to the hole in his throat saying, I can't swim anymore. Is there anything to be said about that anymore? Because you're talking about enormous growth rates and a new enemy. It's not the traditional centralized big tobacco players anymore, the enemy you knew very well. It's it's a very felt social media-centric Silicon Valley icon and, and kind of an amorphous opioid industry? Well, there's a lot of, you know, different ways you can address things. In our opioid uh, effort, um, we are being very serious um, and being very uh, edgy and bold and, you know, frankly, a little alarming. Um, the work that we've done, we the campaign is called No More, uh, is the real-life stories reenacted, of course, because you could never do this for real. Uh, but these are true stories of individuals who have done things like broken their own arm to get more opioids or driven their car into a dumpster to injure themselves to get more uh, opioids. So, you know, in that case, we've decided, yes, we have to be as alarming as uh, you know, as, uh, you know, frankly, a little uh, uh, scary as possible to start that conversation among young people. But it's always about stories, true stories of young people talking to other young people because you can never wag your finger and say things like, you're going to die if, because young people don't care about that. They don't listen to that. And the same thing on you know, vaping, um, you've got a product like Juul that's, you know, the coolest thing since, you know, sliced bread um, as far as, you know, the way young people are viewing it. And we're not going to be successful if we get up there and look like your parents and talk about, you know, nicotine is going to addict you and, you know, sort of say, hey, kids don't do drugs. We're going to have to be more clever than that. And what we found is that whether you use humor or you use, you know, stunts like the um, uh, original uh, body bags commercial that was really not about health effects. What it was about was saying, hey, the tobacco industry is trying to control you. And of course, young people don't like that. Um, you have to engage young people in a way that's talking to them about things they care about right now. And health effects, sadly, is not something you care a lot about when you're 19. Those ads that you mentioned that the CDC runs with, you know, people with holes in their um, throats and all that, very, very effective for older smokers in getting them to want to quit less um, uh, less so with, you know, with teenagers. Robin Caval, anti-cigarette, anti-nicotine, anti-opioid epidemic crusader. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Please do listen to us on NPR One. It's a great app. And on iTunes, where you can subscribe at fulldradio.com. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs> 